Welcome back, Dreadfuls. You're listening to another episode of Left for Dread, the horror podcast for everyone from newbies to fanatics. We are not a spoiler-free podcast, so make sure you've seen the movie or movies you're talking we're talking about before you listen. I'm not drunk. I'm one of your hosts, Rye. You're you're holding you're holding a glass of wine. Hi, hi. I'm Chris and I am wrapped in a blanket of moist hot air because we are we are on a steamboat and we are chugging along through the rivers of the Amazon, aka Florida, where this movie was was shot. Hi. And, if you've ever uh, been to like the Everglades, you know what that feels like. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> so, in case that wasn't a dead giveaway, we're talking about the creature from the Black Lagoon. The Gill Man. The Gill Man from 1954. It's been, I'll say, maybe a decade since I've actually watched this movie. So this was like watching it for the first time all over again. I am so fucking excited to get into this because this was like this was like the last of the Universal Monsters. Yeah, was it? I think it was because uh, Frankenstein's monster, Wolfman, the Mummy. Uh, Dracula have all been not only out and in circulation, but they've already got the Abbott and Costello treatment up until that point. Creature from the Black Lagoon was like the last one. Oh, and the Invisible Man. So, yeah, Creature from the Black Lagoon was like the last one. Looks like the the very first Universal Classic Monsters movie was Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923, Phantom of the Opera in 1925. Uh, and then it follows up with Dracula in 1931. Beautiful. We are talking about the classic 1954 production of Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, directed by Jack Arnold. Uh, produced by William Allen. Uh, screenplay by Henry Essex, Arthur E. Ross. And a su- ensemble cast. I literally... Don't remember the 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 like the last time I've watched this. I was probably a very 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 young kid. Like I I it's I, I was probably one of those movies I saw like on on like some rerun syndicated or like some syndicated rerun. Um, I feel like there was this one rush. I think it was a, yeah. I I think it was a, a Disney restaurant. It, it it simulate like it was indoors, but it simulated a drive-through theater. So all the booths and tables, uh, you sat inside like really classic old-timey 1950s-esque cars, and they would play. Oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah, I, God, I can't remember the name of that this restaurant. Oh, Disney, not there anymore. Who knows? It might might still be or might not be there. I don't remember, but it was Disney World in Florida. I, but anyways, like really old-timey like golden age hollywood type of feel you sit in a booth which is literally this the inside of a like an old school hot rod or one one of those cars and they have it, it was simulated being a drive-through theater i know they played a bunch of a classic old-timey black and white films and one of them was definitely the black lagoon there was some other universal monster stuff it wasn't all like creature feature schlocky uh 50s monster movies there was a lot of them but i don't yeah i i really can't recall like the first time i've watched it it's, it's like kind of like a weird haze 
So I was basically watching this movie for it feels like for the first time again, and I really enjoyed it. So the first time I saw this movie, so my father and I used to watch like re like really old school movies on TV way back when. And my introduction to the Invisible Man, Frankenstein, Wolfman, the Mummy, Dracula, was Abbott and Costello. And then I went back and watched the original movies that sort of sparked the Abbott and Costello treatment of, of these monsters. The Creature from the Black Lagoon was the first one that I had seen in the reverse. So I saw the movie first, and then I saw it get the Abbott and Costello, and then the monsters. Gilman was on an episode of the monsters back in the day. So I saw that too. But the Creature from the Black Lagoon was the first one that I saw sort of in like the reverse order. And like Chris, it has been easily like a decade since I've seen this movie. So it was very much like watching it for the first time all over again. And apart from like the one little thing that kind of bothered me, I, I still love it. I still see why it's a classic and why it holds why it holds up, why it stands the test of time, why it spawned two pretty successful sequels afterwards, one of which launched the career of Clint Eastwood. So this movie and ergo its trilogy just sort of spanned this iconic space for science fiction and, and creature features and horror to sort of exist. And I'm going to get into the Gilman and, and the creation of the creature a little bit later. Because uh, I learned some stuff rewatching this for the first time. And yeah, I'm going to get into that like a little bit later. Heck yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, right, uh, for those of us who are listening, have, have never seen Creature from, La- Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know, maybe, maybe you're a young listener, mm-hmm. or maybe you just, you know, Maybe you just never got around to watching it. No, there's no shame here. Rai, would you give this a, a brief synopsis of what this film is about? The jaded version or the not jaded version? Because watching it in 2020... No, we want, we want, we want people to <laughs> watch this film, Rai. Don't give us the jaded version. Give us, like, the bombastic, like... Because cause when you watch it in 2020, it has a very different, like... Just I give us a synopsis. I understand why Guillermo del Toro sort of like sympathized with the creature watching it in 2020. Not gonna fucking lie. <laughs> so, you know, that being said, remnants of a mysterious animal have come to light in a remote jungle. And a group of scientists intend to determine if the find is an anomaly or evidence of an undiscovered beast. Da da da. Da, da, da. To accomplish their goal, the scientists must brave the most perilous pieces of land in the Amazon. And then, yeah, it's honestly okay. So now that we've heard the actual synopsis, here's the jaded version. No, I'm kidding. I'm not gonna do that. Watch it and then and then tell us what you think. <laughs> I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> Do it. That's usually me, so let it come from you this time. It definitely roots itself in a specific place in American history. So this movie came out in 1954. This is one year uh, prior to what we collectively would call the space race. So like the the giant 
Cold War rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States. Basically, you know, for a long while, um, they were trying to, to uh, show off their military and political might through, you know, what, who can, which nation can make the bigger bomb. Uh, uh, but then they were like, well, we we will we will not only uh, claim supremacy on Earth. We will claim supremacy in space, and um, whoever whoever does so will um, you know will reign supreme. So like the weird political intrigue and and it, it's really strange because like the space race, uh, yes, um, it it was a lot of it was in, it's, uh, due in part to like political rivalries and uh, geopolitical power plays like intense intense nationalism and but at the same time this movie it doesn't have like that more cynical look to it it's message it's 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 about like the excitement and pursuit of discovering the unknown it champions reason and science and intellectual pursuits um the marvels of technology um the the grits of the human soul of the uh the, that's that drives pioneers to like you know explore the west or uh, that drives our astronauts to be the first to you know reach the bounds of space and um this movie uh is like hardcore pro science pro pro intellectualism and uh, even the beginning like you know, I don't know if if it was doing so out of just to, just just because it sounds cool, or I don't know if there's any sort of religious bias or a specific stance it was trying to take. But you know, the 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 prologue of the movie took lines from the the over the first couple of lines from the book of Genesis. Uh, like in the in the beginning, there was void and there was nothing, and then there was lights, and then and then it, it turns into this soliloquy about evolution and how the human race as we knew it, or just civil, or just the Earth and like all the organisms that we know, especially like the humans. You know, we all once descended from the first the first weird protoplasmic fish like things that crawl out of the water or crawl out of, crawl out of the water into land and evolve further. Uh so it's very it's it it spins like this very, very pro science, pro intellectual tone, uh, which was dominant. Uh especially especially like they, they mentioned more than a couple of times like how exploring underwater is just like exploring the the, the unknown of space. Um and you know all the protagonists well most of the protagonists were intellectuals. I really, I really enjoyed that, and then it's when you go back to Rai's statement about the jaded look of it, it it is very jarring when you're watching this in 2020, especially when you're talking about the pandemic society we live in, COVID-19. You know, just the fact that you know, or the the anti-vax movement or like conspiracy theories that 5g is causing sickness and the government's trying to, or vaccines are a way to like implant microchips into your body 
or just the fact that like science in the at least in the U.S. government, um, you know, scientific funding has been like cut down or has 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 less of a significant budget like over the years continuously, kind of have like this really really strange social political climate right now in the United States where like intellectualism is looked down as upon. Uh, it's very weird. Like just the like watching in 2020 and then watching this film made in like the 1950s where like scientific progress was like a defining core theme of the time so that, that was one of the biggest things that struck me that like that my brain was like trying to wrap itself on um i know that was a really long rant but you know that, that was one of the things i found really fascinating uh while contextualizing and absorbing this film for like the first time in, like two decades you know i also think sort of going off of what you were saying is that people watching this in the 1950s also had faith in science and knowledge. Whereas you're not seeing a lot of that here. There are, I know we try not to get political because we're trying to like- Oh, I already, like, I already took it there. <laughs> no, 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 I'm just, I'm reiterating it because this is not the norm, but we are in a not the norm situation. Um, so it is inevitably going to come up. However, in an age where- Right now, I feel like a lot of people have sort of lost their faith in science and knowledge and learning, and they are just sort of willing to believe everything on whatever singular channel they're watching instead of fact-checking and doing things for themselves and having faith that the people who are in labs quite literally risking their own lives and safety to sort of come up with vaccines and things and and testing things and and trying to make us get better as a society um watching that now watching creature from the black lagoon where their entire thing was like for science and then you have this other guy that was like no i want to fucking capture the thing and bring it back with us or or, or kill it trying to do so and you have one guy who literally the entire movie was fighting to just say, let's just leave him alone. Let's just do what we have to do and get out of here. We don't need to take this thing back with us. Let's just do what we came here to do. We have rocks. We have this, we have that. They literally just wanted to study the rocks, study the soil and do like true science on, on all of this. But also the creature from the black lagoon came at a time right when like atomic horror was coming into its own and becoming a thing which I, I, do. Also, I do which i yes which i also think is really um striking considering the fact that when you look at the creature from the black lagoon he is an amphibian in in most if not all of the ways with the exception that he is bipedal he stands on two legs he walks around like a normal human being he looks like he could be the missing link and watching watching that through this lens of like atomic horror and things like that i think also has an impact on an audience even in 2020 putting all of that other other stuff aside like that that kind of has an impact on you the only time i was taken out of it was when he opened his mouth and it was it was kind of this weird like very striking scene i was like watching the actor and i was like oh 
oh my God, like you just sort of felt like you were choking on the water with him. And then he opened his mouth just like a little too wide. And I saw the human mouth inside the suit and that, that <laughs> took me out of it for like a minute. He was doing his best. Like he was, he was pressing on it like a little, like, uh, <laughs> like a little air, like a, like a bubble or like a, a pump that would make the, the mouth uh, move. And like uh, the, the, the poor, the poor creature's eyes. And like, it was just, that it, actor it, was it, the, the eyes like, are just like, Staring in slightly different directions, and they're like it's like literally like a dead fish, um, and they couldn't do anything about the eyes. <laughs> like contacts used to be like that too. Contact lenses used to be made out of glass, so it was literally like a sort of like fog that w- like went over your your contacts, and then like even before they made like colored contact lenses, like some of those you have a hard time seeing out of. So it's kind of like the same thing. Like he had like blinders on, like that actor. The the actress who played Kay got injured on set because that guy couldn't see where he was going. Yeah, I mean the the set the set was not very well lit to begin with, and um, but okay, and, 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 and the costume was incredibly hard to to look. And and Kay, uh, she like her actress was supposed to like act unconscious, so like and she was she only, she only had a scrape on the head. She. Nothing yeah. got broken. She was okay. She still got injured on set, though. Like, but also, like, she was part of what contributed to that was the water was very cold, so she was trying very hard not to shiver, and that also has something like to do with the fact that you're concentrating so hard on like, like not shivering, but you you still can't help what your body is doing. But also, like, for all of its faults, even though I don't think there were very many. It was beautifully shot for 1954. Like, yeah, I, I, I didn't know this. Like, it was shot. It, it's, it looks so good. I mean, I I haven't seen a, a lot of other 1950s monster horror movies. We're like, going to change like, that. Like, I mean, we'll, we'll definitely change that. <laughs> but, like, it, it, it had a great, great look. Uh, obviously, like, well, I, I watched my the version i watched was on amazon prime so i don't i think it might it might have been one of the slightly reformatted editions um because i i didn't know this the the film originally was shot for 3d sometime after its release it got reformatted so it could be watched normally or like or had a better quality or viewing experience for 2d I think when it came when it came down to uh, putting it to video, I believe it was reformatted out out of uh, out of 3D. But yeah, it was originally shot that way. Which I what I wouldn't give to just go back in time and just watch that in 3D for for a hot minute. But I also found myself comparing it to the thing from another world. Because of the approach that these supposed scientists took to each of these things. The thing from another world comes into their space and invades their space and spends most of its time trying to get out. And all they want to do is track it down and kill it. They don't care about anything else. They just, and these are scientists. They're there on a scientific exploration and all they want to do is kill it. And I found myself comparing that, that viewing experience to Creature from the Black Lagoon because in that respect, the science, the scientist in this movie was sort of like, leave it alone. We did what we came here to do. Let's just go. Black Lagoon, I mean, it was made 
in the the same era as the thing from another world. I th- right. think watching it now, that's how you feel. But watching it in 1954, they had the the set the same sentiment was very much there. Yeah, but I I think I think the thing from another world didn't. Well, it had so much more of that blatant. Well, not blatant. I guess like it it was much the the political subtext was much much more centered, or I guess configured towards like the communist red scare mccarthyism stuff yeah Uh, yeah. but i mean on on the inverse yes it's still the same era but creature from the black lagoon was citing more of like i i guess like the more optimistic traits of that era like like the scientific progress and technology and like the space race and all that jazz Right. So like watch as an audience member in 1954 watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, you watch it as this like savage creature ripping through people and just terrorizing this group of people that's just there to do what they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Versus when you watch it in 2020, you sort of sympathize with this creature because we encroached on his turf. We're invading his space. And you sympathize with that and you're like, damn. And you can sit there and really take note about all the, <laughs> again, we already got to the political space. So I'm just going to keep it going. We've already done that. <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's just like, it just like highlights that commentary for me watching this in 2020. Well, I, mean, I know it, a decade ago, this is not the mindset I would have had. I would have just enjoyed it as a fifties black and white horror. Well, just to, just a counterpoint, like I, I think, the 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 monster mania of it all um i mean i i you know i completely agree that's like 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 the majority reaction to it uh at least especially when it when it first came out like obviously like in 2020 uh like the 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 del the the del toro take where the monsters uh, it's sympathetic uh and that that's that's the entirely entirety of its of his uh, impetus to create shape of water but um you know there were still though there were still sentiments you know uh even at its inception maurice zim who was one of the writers or i think he was either like the the story yeah he was like the least story guy or the writer uh or the guy who expanded the skeleton of the of the story so william allen he was the producer so he's at a dinner party uh, yes. for, for Citizen Kane. Yes, uh, and this he, is how the idea was like birthed. Yeah. And then uh, so he meets funny. Gabriel Figueroa, who's like this Mexican cinematographer. And like, and he, and, like, so this this creature, the Gilliam, the Gilman, like, it's based on like actual folklore uh, about a big like, mythical race of half fish, half creatures in the Amazon River. And then Alan uh, took a bunch of these story notes. And wrote the sea monster, uh, which is like the first incarnation of Black Lagoon. Uh, and that the in that treatise, like Beauty and the Beast, was like a heavy inspiration on the story. And then that became the Black Lagoon. So you already see that like that sympathy for the creature already there. Um, and then the other thing that I found really interesting, Julie Adams, uh, who played. K. She Adam stated like in interviews uh, that she would she felt sympathy and compassion for the monster as well. She said like quote there's always is there's there is always that feeling of compassion for the monster. I think it maybe touches something in ourselves, maybe the darker parts of ourselves 
that long to be loved and think that they really can't ever be loved, it strikes a chord with, within us. So, like, e- even, like, Kay, like, one of the leading ladies, she had that point of view about, like, compassion uh, or, or that sort of empathy for the creature itself. Uh, it wasn't until, you know, Del Toro, who took the experiences of watching Blackagoon as a child as what he thought, and just, you know, him being a Del Toro, or being the Del Toro, he's like, yeah, I, I can do what I want. <laughs> like, I can make a fantasy film about this, about getting sexy with fish people, and I can win an Academy Award uh, about it, too. So, hell yeah. Listening, so when I saw The Shape of Water, I saw a special screening that had a Q&A with the, the cast and the crew afterwards. So, Guillermo del Toro was there. Doug Jones was there. Like, like the cat, like, they were there. And I remember him saying, uh, my main inspiration for this movie was watching the creature from the Black Lagoon, sympathizing with the creature, thinking, why can't he have the girl? Yeah. Why is that <laughs> stupid, like, why is stupid that scientist man being all macho. <laughs> exactly. So he was just sort of like, that's the movie I want to see, so I'm going to make that movie. And then The Shape of Water was born. <laughs> Which is not a horror movie, but do yourself a favor. Just go watch, go, go watch Fishman. Go watch Doug Jones. Go support Doug Jones because he is, he is in the fish costume. A couple of things that I learned along the way. Apparently, Citizen Kane dinner aside, the first treatment for this film was very much taken from the plot of King Kong. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, okay, that, yeah. I mean, you can sort of, you sort of get that too, though. They're in the Amazon, they're on Kong's Island. And you can sort of like feel, you sort of get that feel to it. But, except they leave the creature there and they don't bring him back, which I totally dig. I love that. However, the creature's fate was intentionally left in question literally they did it to prep for a sequel just in case this movie was a hit they had room to make a sequel if it wasn't it was still a question mark and i have to say that like i'm irritated when movies do that now but in 1954 that is solid that is i mean i mean we're we're, in 1950s you're not oversaturated with sequels or remakes or reboots yet (laughs) right also also carry that i did find out that the original design for the creature was not only modeled after the academy award statue but the initial concept for that would have been extremely feminine looking and they sort of put it on the back burner for if there's a sequel let's take it in this direction but they ultimately obviously didn't decide to do that because of the way the the sequel and the third film progressed the sort of tale of the gill man which i thought was really fucking interesting also two actors played the gill man yeah one for all the the land scenes and one for all the auto underwater scenes i so one of the craziest pieces of trivia is um the uh, the actor who played the underwater scenes um, is Rico, Rico Browning. Browning. So yeah, they they hired him to yeah. So he he could breathe underwater or yeah, he could hold his breath underwater for four minutes, uh, which is in, insane to me. 
like the underwater shots like there it, it takes a significant a part of the film but it's like really well shot and choreographed and like it, it, and all of it's super silent all you have is like this amazing orchestral score in the background which like which really sets the the tone and the pacing it's like a really it's like a it reminds me a lot of like you know old school looney tunes um and tom and jerry cartoons and it's just like it like the the music just accentuates the scene and the the music itself like speaks a language and it tells you what's going on uh really really cool stuff it was actually the executive the executives of the studio's decision to have the creature's theme play literally every single time a piece of him was on screen, which was a little bit grating at times, which was literally the only thing I didn't like about this movie, but I understood why they did it. But I found myself at times while I, I would shut my eyes and I would listen to the music and there were parts of it where I was like, why does this sound like Jaws? So, <laughs> I Steven, was- well, this is the first film like Steven Spielberg cites that he could remember seeing, I think, in like theaters or something like that. I think, I think that was, a, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I was, I was looking at trivia. Like Steven Spielberg cited it as one of his, one of his earliest films that he's ever seen or recalled seeing. And I think that that also just sort of speaks volumes. I mean, when you watch modern horror, I think one of my favorite things is when you can see a director's passion for the roots that the horror that horror came from that sort of inspires them to go in a certain direction whether it's a color cha- whether it's a color scheme lighting um a particular musical tone whatever it is i love that so i think the fact that i could like shut my eyes and like sort of think of jaws even though jaws was in 1975 and this was in 54 i th- I think that even if the, that bare hint of all of that and the fact that that's there, I think, again, just speaks volumes to the creators that exist in the horror community. That being said, in this new era, the quote-unquote dark universe and spanning these universal monster remakes... I'm pretty sure that's dead, though. <laughs> it's not. Oh, it's not? Oh, no. <laughs> So after the success of The Invisible Man, which I regret to inform all of you, I still have not seen. I hear really good things about it, though. I have, too. Evidently, Ryan Gosling has taken it upon himself to stick his neck in the race of reviving this quote-unquote dark universe. Oh, my God. Is Ryan Gosling going to be a sexy fish man? Sexy wolf man, I think, is, oh, is the direction No, going. Coward. Coward. Ryan Gosling be a sexy fish man. Do it. Is it Ryan? I'm 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 pretty I'm 90% certain it's Ryan Gosling, not Ryan Reynolds, because I feel like that's that's just too well, off the mark. You could have both Ryan's. Why why not? No, no, you can't. You can't. One of them's purely comedy. Yeah, I can't see him do anything serious. Um, uh oh yeah, Ryan, yeah, Ryan Gosling. Well, um, Ryan Gosling and Lee Lay uh uh-huh. is, is doing the story. Uh and then uh Jason Bloom and Ryan Gosling are producers. Uh, on the Wolfman. So. On the Wolfman, correct. Yeah. yeah, okay. And Lee Winnell just did the Invisible Man from 2019 or this year. This year has been like five years, so I don't know. Time has no meaning anymore, so I don't know where we are in the timeline. Um, but yeah, so that's happening. And I bring this up because the creature from the Black Lagoon tried to get remade twice <laughs> before I, yeah. it got shut down. One the, one time was 
by in 1982 by John Landis, where he had Rick Baker already lined up to do the makeup, but the studio decided to throw all their money into Jaws 3D instead. Big mistake! But also in the 1990s with John Carpenter. Yes, I would love to see a John Carpenter and Black Lagoon movie. That would be so good. The killer for this, though, was his failure of memoirs of, of the Invisible Man. And I really think that that was why the studio was like, no, you're not going to be able to remake this. Mm. But what really grinds my gears about this and what would have made you so happy is John Carpenter wanted to incorporate a Lovecraftian feel to his Creature from the Black Lagoon remake, which would have made you so happy in the night. Like, I know. I, like Lovecraftian fantasy. <laughs> I, I mean, like so many of like Lovecraft stories involve like humanoid fish people to begin with. And like, <laughs> yeah, that would have that been so good. That would have been so perfect. But no, we can't have nice things, Rai. We can't. No, we can't. I'm so sorry. Okay, so I'm not sorry that we have gotten this far into the episode without mentioning her, but I feel like we need to have like a full discussion about this. So I sort of waited for the opportune moment. Ryan's going to go on a feminist rant. If you don't like feminism, do it. So here's the thing. And I learned this very recently, which gave me cause to buy this book, which everyone should purchase. It's called The Lady from the Black Lagoon. Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, who the fuck is Millicent Patrick and why do I give a shit? She is not only one of the key Disney animators for a couple of sequences in Fantasia. Fantasia. Chris's favorite, A Night on Bald Mountain. So good. (laughs) She's my hero. She was one of the animators that gave him that, like, beautiful, like, blue, like, ethereal glow and that whole thing that was all her uh, as it is this woman created the creature from the black lagoon she is solely responsible for this creature being as we see him today but the the universal makeup director i believe publicly took credit for like decades yeah so what happened was she worked he was her supervisor her boss she might have created the creature, but he did the makeup for it. And even though she did touch-ups and she did a couple of things on set, it was it was his makeup. And she never, up until recently, and I don't mean in the last, like, two years. I mean, a little bit more recently than that. People have sort of picked up on it. Um, started getting credit that the creature from the Black Lagoon is hers. And her name is not in the credits for the film. They sent Millicent Patrick out on a promotional tour to have her talk about the creature from the Black Lagoon and her creating the monster and sort of highlighting her as this really amazing talent and getting her for this film. And while she was on a promotional tour, Bud Westmore, who did the makeup for the movie, went to the executives and got her name removed from the credits and then proceeded to fire her when she got back from the promotional tour and she never worked in Hollywood ever again. So depressing. And it's so depressing because she she did star in Hollywood films and sort of had like a like a a tiny career in all of that. But she is a fucking not only just like a fierce-looking woman, but she could hold her own. I mean, 
this woman was beautiful, poised, statuesque, and decided to go into makeup, which there are women that are still struggling to get into that industry and get into the movie industry in general. Um, so I started reading this book by Mallory O'Meara, the lady from the Black Lagoon, and she makes a comment about how it's easier for women to get into space than it is to get into Hollywood. And I think that that is extremely telling. <laughs> I really just wanted to highlight the fact that Millicent Patrick is solely responsible for the creature that you see on screen. And I think that she deserves so much more credit than and she has not, got. Yeah. And it's not just on Black Lagoon. I'm like, her impact on Hollywood is like monumental. Like, you know, she's cited as like one of the first women to work in special effects and makeup. And she's worked on a ton of Disney projects. And she's, and a, she has a, a ton of film credits under her. And she, she's also an actress too. So like, that's, it's, um, you know, she's a master of all. And uh, it really sucks. It really sucks that, uh, you know, Hollywood beat her down and left a bad taste in her mouth and ousted her like that. Um, yeah. I have a quote from Rico Browning, who was one of the men responsible for playing the gill creature, because he actually met Millicent on set exactly one time. Um, so he says, uh, quote, she was painting something on my chest with a paintbrush. Browning says, she said, I'm giving it a touch up. I said, well, okay, but you better let it dry. I'm going in the water. And that was the last I saw of her. It disheartens me that someone who so very clearly found something that they, that they cared about, that they really wanted to do, um, didn't get a chance to cement her career in special effects makeup in Hollywood, the way Jack Arnold got to cement his career in cinematic history with uh cinema fantastique or like essentially a, a genre of film that is dedicated to like supernatural horror or science fiction or mythological monster horror and stuff like that so she already has had an impact on hollywood that we probably just don't even really really understand or know about but she could have had a much bigger impact had she been allowed to really shine especially in that age. Like, could you imagine if she had just been, like, what other things sh could she have accomplished? What other movies could she have impacted by just, like, getting her hands involved? And I just, I, I, we can't talk about The Creature from the Black Lagoon without talking about Millicent Patrick and, and all the shit that she has done. I highly encourage fucking all of you to pick up this book and, and read it and the girl that wrote it is absolutely a fangirl and she works in the industry and you can feel her passion and all of this. And as a woman in horror, you can, you, you sort of connect and feel everything. So like do yourself a solid and just, just pick this up and, and, and read it, especially in relation to all of this. Cause yeah, I, I just, I, I, we can't talk about this without talking about Mills and Patrick. And I think that she, she deserves so much more than she got. Yeah. Screw you, Hollywood. You're bad. Fuck you, Hollywood. You're bad. More women in horror, more women in movies, please and thank you. I mean, she she died in 1998, basically forgotten by the world except for the small group of like hardcore devoted fans that really knew who she was. And that's so sad given all the contributions that she's made. So over the span of 20 years, she was in 21 motion pictures. She acted in TV shows. Uh, as a co she was uh, on set as a costumer, as a character designer, as an illustrator. She had probably one of the 
biggest promising careers in a Universal Studios makeup department, and it was just put to end and put to fucking shame because of her exile from the studio. And that's just that's gut wrenching. Yeah, I like to think like I mean, I like to think like Hollywood has gotten better, but it's in a lot better, of ways it hasn't. And yeah. I it sucks. It really sucks. It does. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer about all this because we just had this like beautiful conversation about the creature from the Black Lagoon, but we literally could not end any part of this podcast without talking about her. I just I feel terrible that she sort of faded not into obscurity, but almost into like shame. Like she just faded into the background without really getting her dues. And even though it's many years too late, I'm giving Millicent Patrick her dues. I give you so much fucking credit. I really hope that at one point they re-release this movie and put her name into the credits where it belongs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Millicent, you're awesome. You know, rest in power. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. So sometimes it just, like, it, 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 all it takes is, like, a passionate fan or a passionate group of fans to, like, start a movement, um, you know? So a lot of you, actually, well, I, I guess I haven't really mentioned it very much here on this podcast, um, but I'm an incredibly huge, huge fan of Batman. Uh, and this is, like, a similar story where um for well by now batman has been around for like 80 plus years it, the 75th anniversary was oh god um a couple years ago already it actually yeah it might it might be at least like the 80 like the 80th anniversary i think was like last year or two years ago or something like that uh, but that being said like for decades for literal decades like Batman was a multi-billion dollar franchise and IP, uh, and Bob Kane was credited as the, the sole creator for a very long time. And there is this super dedicated group of fans who knew the real story that, like, Bob Kane, yes, he co he co-created Batman, but, like, Everything that we truly know or that we associate with Batman, like the Batmobile and a lot of like the, most of his rogues gallery or the fact or, or just the iconic design of the original Batsuit, um, that's all goes to Bill Finger. Bill Finger, you know, is now lauded as like one of the, the one of the founding fathers of of Batman and it took over like like literally over like half a decade like or, or, or like seven over over 50 60 years for this groundswell of like fan outcry and and uh, fan run um, initiatives to get to like for, basically force DC Comics to acknowledge that Bill Finger had a significant role in you know, creating Batman. So they like a bunch of there was like a, a huge book. Uh that there's a great there's a great um documentary that came out. Um God, what was it called? I think it was called like um Bill like Bat Batman and Bill or something like that. Oh god, I I feel so bad not remembering the actual name of the documentary. Anyway, 
the, the point is, like, there's an incredible fan movement that basically forced DC Comics to acknowledge and, like, start printing new comic books uh, for, like, the first time in, like, 70-plus years. You know, Bill Finger's name could be actually seen, you know, alongside Bob Kane and in, in, in every Batman production afterwards. And, like, that's, that's, that's DC Batman. If Comics can change, then the rest of Hollywood surely can. Yeah. That's going to sound a lot shadier than I mean it, but I don't give a shit. You can absolutely, like, I feel like the world would be so much more open and and available to young creative minds who are seeing things like this. And yeah, sure, uh, you can always go under the guise of quote-unquote better late than never, but it's about accountability for the good and the bad. That's where we're at right now. So... If anything, the last political thing I'll say about all of this is just accountability. We should be holding people accountable for their contributions or their actions. Again, negative and positive. And I don't think there's nearly enough of that, especially in the in Hollywood and in horror, really. There are so many lost voices that really need to be heard. And I'm happy that for our little audience that I at least got to maybe reiterate something that you have already known, or I got to teach you something new that Bud Westmore may have done the makeup for the creature from the black lagoon, but he is not responsible for its creation. That was all Millicent Patrick. And she had a weirdly wonderful life and contributed to so many things that you probably have seen and just aren't aware of she also like adopted a multitude of names over her life so might not have been under millicent patrick when she did it but it was probably hers like full disclosure this is awesome she was born mildred elizabeth fulvia de rossi yep she went by millicent trent because she, she she got married and then like Millicent Patrick and she packed she, on she, all she's... Of her like husband's names. She used the the name Millicent because when they were when she was younger, her family moved onto the into this like estate uh, of a of a publisher whose wife's name was Millicent. So she took the name Millicent. Like she <laughs> she just tacked on a shit ton of names. So. She's probably been involved in a lot of shit that we've seen and we just aren't aware of. And I just want to throw all, like, as much credit as I can as a horror fan to her as I possibly can. So, Millicent Patrick, you go, girl. I'm sorry that I only started learning about this in adulthood. Although, to be fair, when you died, it was quite a wee thing and there was no way I would have known. But thank you for everything. I think that hey one more thing this is this is this is bothering me um so i'm looking through her filmography oh no <laughs> 13 of her film roles are uncredited 13 yep. that's crazy like she like that's yeah hollywood that's God, close, that's close to half of the, because like i said she was in over 21 movies over the span of 20 years and 13 of those are uncredited that's really bad that's, that's like a really a that's a really bad track record i that's i yeah. Anyway. Do better. Anyway, Millicent, you're the best. Hollywood, you suck. <laughs> Get, level up, please. Level up. Get with it. You and I did watch a really solid, like, amazing 50s Universal horror movie. And 
for me, I mean, knowing this is, this is our first uh, Universal yeah. Monsters. And we started movie. with Creature from the Black Lagoon. We're basically going to go backwards. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I'm down. It's fine. <laughs> I'm happy we started with this one. It's not going to be our last. I don't know when we're going to get to them. We'll have to move some stuff around. I don't care. I definitely want to explore all of the Universal Monster movies. And then I absolutely want to get to we'll have like a comedy horror segment because I absolutely want to like get into the Abbott and Costello treatments that these Universal movie monsters got. Because that also had an impact because like I said earlier in the episode, I went from watching Abbott and Costello to watching these horror movies and turning and then turning into like a massive horror fan. So I, as an adult, I kind of want to go backwards. I kind of want to start like watch where they started from, like where they came from. And then we'll, like watch the Abbott and Costello treatment because the last time I watched anything Abbott and Costello was the Who on First skit, and that has nothing to do with horror movies. I, mean, I think it'll be a good like follow up or epilogue because like I know when this movie came out in theaters, um, just for like marketing purposes and stuff. Um, prior to Black Lagoon being shown, they would show uh, this comedy skit. Uh, generally known as Abbott Costello meet the creature from the Black Lagoon and Ben Chapman um, you know, reprised his role as the guild man for that particular program. Um, so that's something that we should definitely revisit because we didn't really, I mean, I, I, I didn't watch the, this comedy short while preparing this episode. Uh, Ryan, I'm not sure if you did or not. Um, I didn't, but, but I've absolutely seen it before. Okay, cool. So we should definitely talk about that as a, as a footnote or an yes. epilogue. Yes, absolutely. Anyway, five out of five. Five out of five swamp creatures. Yeah, five out of five swamp creatures. I Going back to horror roots always feels really good. And I know we don't do a lot of older horror. I'm hoping to rectify that in more recent episodes for this year. I know that the ones that we have on the docket are really good selections, so I feel really confident. But I also can't wait till we start exploring Universal Monster movies and, and diving into all that. So I'm really fucking excited. We should totally hate watch the Dark Universe movies as well. <laughs> I do. In all fairness, I do want to cover the Invisible Man. We want to. Oh no! I want to see. I want to see the terrible Dracula Untold movie. I've never seen it. I, I actually I haven't seen any of the new one. Oh, I, I haven't even actually seen um, Invisible Man. So I, mean, I hear good things about it. You know what I did see recently though, because it's on. Oh, no. It's on Stars or HBO. Oh, no. I watch Hollow Man. I love Hollow Man. Hollow Man's great. I don't know what you're on your take. did things to me when I was younger. I was fine with it. It's <laughs> I, bad. But it's yeah, one of those... I, I can, I watched, I can yeah. watch that movie, though. I... Yeah, so Hollywood... Hollywood... Hollywood I mean, we'll save it for the Invisible Man. Like, Hollow Man did not age well. But I still love the shit out of it. It's a bad movie, but I... It's... It's great, but it's it did not age well. But you know, hey, Kevin Bacon. So there you go. Anything with Kevin Bacon, you're just you're just there for. Yes. Not every Kevin Bacon horror movie is going to be Tremors. Also, though, hold on. On a Kevin Bacon horror movie note, there is a very recent horror movie called You Should Have Left with Kevin Bacon and Amanda Seyfried. Also, Kevin Bacon. It was great in the following. I love that show. That show was great. We we should. We don't. We okay. We're we're making a canon right now. We're doing a Kevin Bacon horror special. 
Okay, so that, I'm down. Yeah, yes. Anyway. When's his birthday? We'll do first birthday. He'll uh, hate it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I am fat checking right now. Uh, Watch it have passed already. Oh, too year. late. He was born yeah. July 8th. <laughs> we have to See, wait a whole year. What did I just say? I just said we're going to have to wait till next year because it definitely passed already. I could feel it in my bones. Could feel it in my bones. Next year for Kevin Bacon's birthday, we're going to do a Kevin Bacon horror fest. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. 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 Brilliant. Now that, we, now that we did that, we both have, I guess we, we're both sort of in a, in agreement, five out of five creatures. Oh, we're... definitely, definitely. Uh, it's like it's a staple. It's a staple of creature features, and like it's. I feel like all all the universe all the Universal monster movies are sort of a staple, though. They are some of the backbones of of horror. I mean, they're not the only backbones, but they are some of the the things that make up the backbone of horror. So, if you haven't watched any of the Universal horror movie. Oh, universal monster movies do it do it do it <laughs> on that note thank you for listening to another episode of left for dread please don't forget to rate review and subscribe everything helps you can listen to us on itunes overcast stitcher soundcloud and spotify every friday you can follow us on twitter and instagram at left for dread pod you can find us on facebook and you can check us out on our website at leftfordread.com we have a very, very exciting um, series of episodes coming up. I'm so at, excited. Yeah, end of the month, it's going to be Junji Ito's birthday. Uh, I know I, I, we keep talking about this podcast. Like, uh, I, I mean, we, 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 we covered um, you know, some, some Japanese horror films already, but we, re- we haven't really delved into one of my biggest passions, like, manga and anime especially horror manga and anime uh and jujitsu is a titan when it comes to horror manga so for his birthday we're gonna celebrate by doing some junji ito i guess spoiler casts and deep dives and it's gonna be awesome so stay tuned for that cannot wait i am a newbie to junji ito and i'm so excited to get involved in this because i've seen Ito's artwork, and I'm blown away by it because it's both beautiful and horrifying to look at, and I love that. Body horror! Yay! Right! For a strange reason, seeing it on paper doesn't unnerve me nearly as much as, like, watching body horror. So, I'm really excited to get into this, and I, I can't wait. Stay tuned. Get ready. I'm having my first Junji Ito experience, and I couldn't be happier about it, so let's do this. Yay! Yes! And don't forget, stage red. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>